Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we are joined by Monica Semayoa. She is a climate reporter for Oregon Public Broadcasting and is co-chair of the steering committee for the Uproot Project, a network of environmental journalists of color. Earth Day is coming up on April 22nd, so I thought this would be a good one for today. Monica, thanks for joining us. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Very excited. So what's your journalism origin story? So the thought came to me way back in 2014 while I was writing sports blog on the European Champions League. I'm a huge sports fan and I loved writing and I was having so much fun just writing about how this league was going and I was also getting excited that the World Cup was coming up in Brazil and I thought, oh my God, I love sports and I love writing so much. Why have I never thought about being a sports journalist? And I mean, that's kind of where journalism first came to mind. Of course, I am not a sports journalist now, but I always loved to write. And I knew I wanted a career where I could express that, but it, it did take a while to get me to where I am now. But that's that's kind of why my origin story, sports and writing. All right. So that's fascinating. As someone who works in sports, I'm particularly intrigued. But all right. So how did the switch happen? It happened when I decided to go back to school to um, become a journalist. I needed a few more credits because I had graduated a few years prior and somehow whatever degree I got just didn't qualify anymore. I don't know why. So I had to go back to community college and I had a class where a professor read something on one of the stories that we had to do a paper on and he knew that I wanted to be a sports journalism and he said, listen, I know that this is what you want to do and you to make great money doing it, but I know your heart lies somewhere else. And I was like, oh my God, how dare you? But yes, you're right. Because I think what he was trying to say is that, yes, sports is amazing, and I know you love it, but there's so many more issues that maybe I needed to pay more attention to, to write about that and to just bring awareness to. And I always think back to that moment because I, I could have just been a sports writer and not, dr- or, or not gone into, you know, what I'm doing now. All right. So wait, so you, uh, at, to that point, did you not have any background at all in environment or science or climate or anything like that? Nope, n- nothing. Uh, how did you how did you accumulate that knowledge then? Well, I decided to go back to school. I knew that I wanted to go to San Francisco State because they had a program that a study abroad program in Australia. And I always wanted to go to Australia. And I thought, right, this is my chance. I'm going back to school. Let's work really hard to get into this program. It took a year and I was accepted and I was already taking journalism classes. But again, it wasn't towards environment or climate at all. At that point, I switched from sports to or to travel, which I thought was, it's kind of funny because it still didn't mean <laughs> probably what my professor thought. Yep. And 
um, when right before I left, I was really into documentary film and photos. And I remember I bought this expensive camera and I was like, I'm going to go to Australia, just document everything. And I had already set myself up to take some classes in video production while I was studying abroad in Australia. So fast forward to a few weeks in starting at the University of Technology in Sydney, I hated video editing. It was so hard. <laughs> um, it just sucked that when I had to do a cut and my subject moved and I didn't you know, direct them correctly, when it came time to editing, it was just like, oh my God, this is so difficult. I don't want to do this. I, I think I'd be really miserable in this in this career. And I kind of was just like, well, well, then what do I do? So maybe about a week or two after we, the school had a, or the uni, school is for high school, I learned. Uni is like, oh, you're in college, university. They threw a job fair and I'm just walking around and this guy approaches me out of nowhere and goes, hey, you want to do radio? And I looked at him and I was like, sure, why not? You know, looks good on the resume. And I went into this, this workshop where I had to pay money to be part of it. And I was kind of iffy. I was like, I don't know. I'm just a student right now. I don't have that much money. My mom encouraged me to do it. And I ended up loving being part of radio. So that's kind of just kind of like how I got started into switching into different beats and one of my first stories actually it's on food waste but still in that time I did not think about writing for environment though I did spend a lot of time learning how to work in radio which landed me my internship at KQED but even as I spent 18 months in KQED I still wasn't thinking about writing for climate and environment up until I was applying for jobs, and one of them was a general assignment reporter at Oregon Public Broadcasting. I didn't get that job. I was a finalist, and I was so bummed out because I was like, oh, my God, it would have been so great to be there, general assignment. That's going to give me the experience I need to kind of then find a beat. At that time, Mark, I was interested in technology and immigration. So about a week after... I did not get the job offer. I got an, another email from OPB saying, hey, science and environment, are you interested? And I remember reading it and I thought, did they send this to the wrong person? Like, why are they sending this to me? I was actually terrified of doing any environment and science stories because I thought you had to have a background for it. I thought you had to go to school for it. And I thought, nope, that's not me. I didn't go to school for any of that. But OPB were like, we really liked you. We think that you'll definitely learn on the beat. You're super smart. And it was for a one-year contract. And I thought, one year wouldn't hurt. I arrived and, well, look at me now. I'm still at OPB. I got offered full-time. And now my quote-unquote expertise is on climate. <laughs> and it's a few years now that you've been there, right? Yes. Yep. Almost four. All right. So let's backtrack slightly here. Explain where you're from and whether there is anything in your upbringing or heritage that lent itself to telling stories, whether it's sports, travel, 
technology, immigration, environment, whatever. Born and raised in the Bay Area, East Bay, but my parents, both my parents are from Guatemala. And I wouldn't say specifically that there's something in my upbringing or heritage that kind of led me into this, but I always admired that my family members were such great storytellers. And I've always loved hearing their stories every time we went to go visit our family in Guatemala. And I just like, they were so descriptive that I could close my eyes and just kind of imagine, oh, they were probably here and this was happening, this was happening. So I always really liked that storytelling gene, I guess. And I and I was like, I hope I could be that great of a storyteller. But on the other end of it, interestingly enough, I followed my mother's footsteps in terms of this career. So when I was younger, she mentioned that she worked at a news station as a translator in Guatemala, but I never asked like, oh, cool. It was just like, oh, all right, that's, that's nice, a translator. I just thought that she helped translate the news but wasn't on camera. But a few years ago, I found her old work badge and she was a video producer. So <laughs> my mom was definitely a full on news reporter. And I asked her about it. I was like, wait, you didn't tell me all of this. And she did say she didn't want to tell me that this was her dream because she wanted me to follow my own. And I unknowingly followed her footsteps into a career that we both love. And it's kind of cool to to hear how back in the day how she used to edit. <laughs> I was <laughs> complaining on, you know, video editing on a computer. She had to actually cut the film and paste this and paste that and make sure everything was ready to go. So that's wow. kind of like a little bit more of my my way into journalism. Sure. All right. So we recently spoke with Jared Council of Forbes and he talked about having to learn business on the fly in order to do his job. The previous week's interview to this one that we did with Mia Maldonado in Idaho was about how she had to learn court coverage on the fly mm. and the challenge of doing that and learning what a like what competency meant and things of that sort. So I'm curious, what was the experience of learning climate envi and environment on the fly and what advice would you have for someone who's got to do that? It was tough because, again, I was terrified to step into a beat that I had no prior knowledge to. And it took about a year of reporting on this beat until I was finally able to say, oh, I know about this. But it took all of that time to kind of be the general assignment reporter for the beat. So one day I was covering federal policy, the next day I was covering maybe a wildfire, and then I was covering an endangered species lawsuit. Another day I was covering something that was happening at a city level. So my editor was kind of throwing me all of these stories so I can kind of get familiar with how to cover this beat. The environment is a huge beat. And back then I was an environment reporter. So doing that allowed me to learn what I was more passionate about to, to write about and what things I needed more help on and, and you know, what things I'm like, maybe I don't want to cover this. But, you know, for someone that may be in a similar situation, I would just say, you know, give it time and not be so hard on yourself. 
definitely learn from your mistakes. They will happen, but that's how you'll end up learning and how to be better at the job and, and speak up if you need help. And don't be afraid to say, I don't know this. That happened to me a lot. As I said, I am a native Californian. I'm a, a born and raised in the Bay Area. And when I first started sending emails out to sources, they're like, hey, welcome to the PNW. And I was like, PNW, what does that mean? <laughs> and I remember turning around to my colleague and I'm like, hey, what does PNW mean? And she gave me a look and she's like, the Pacific Northwest. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I, I knew I had so much to learn, but I was, again, trying not to be so hard on myself because I knew that I was way behind and had a lot of catch up to do, but still kept in mind that I'm like, hey, you're learning. You'll get there one day. It's is only year one. How does Oregon Public Radio define like what the mission of what the beat is supposed to be? So right now, our team is going through some changes. So I was in the science and environment unit, but now I have moved into the quote unquote newsroom and they are um, creating a climate desk. And with that, my title changed from environment reporter to climate reporter and allowing me to develop my own beat. And I decided to focus on the clean energy transition, climate solutions, adaptation, the human impacts of climate change and environmental justice stories. That's quite a, a gamut of stories to cover, certainly. What are the characteristics of like, what when you explain what your coverage is, how would you characterize it? So in the time that I spent as an environment reporter, again, I was covering all these topics and sometimes news would break, let's say in the clean energy transition world or the environment justice world, but there was news breaking on the state level in terms of like environmental rights or something. And I felt torn because I was leaning towards more the environmental justice side, but I couldn't really cover it because I had to cover the environment part of it. So it really just kind of developed itself in a way where I'm like, these are what I think are important and what we need to start paying more attention to. And I love that this new beat of mine is very community driven. Um, since I've been covering a lot on this beat, I know that a lot of the solutions, a lot of the conversations start at the community level, then they move up to a city level, then they move up to a state and hopefully, you know, a federal level. And so a lot of it, it's just kind of like, what, where am I seeing movement and what are people passionate about in the state or in, in the city or in the region that they want to hear more about? Here's one clip of your reporting work. Musser spent about $50,000 to upgrade his house. He added solar panels, an electric water heater, a smart electric panel, an electric vehicle charger, and a battery storage system. All right, I will turn on. It also has an electricity-powered induction cooktop. It takes less than a minute to heat up a kettle to boiling. It's all part of demonstrating how well people can live in a home that's powered entirely by electricity. 
So I'm looking at some of the stories that you've done recently. There's one from December. It was a four-minute radio piece, a 1,700-word print story about how transforming the power grid is critical to Oregon's clean energy future. Can you walk us through the work that you would have done on that story from initial idea to the end of it? So that one's a fun one. I had already previously covered some power grid stories and some clean energy transition focused on EVs. And because I was paying attention to that, I started asking, huh, what about the power grid? Like, don't we need to do some stuff on the power grid? And and I think that's where that story kind of was born, I guess, that idea came out of. It's It's also part of the Inflation Reduction Act that they're going to be, you know, dishing out $370 billion. That is a lot for climate mitigation and climate change, right? And so a lot of it's focused on making buildings and homes more energy efficient. And I'm like, okay, cool. But then again, what about the power grid? Is there any money going towards, you know, building more transmission lines? Or how are we making sure that we're de delivering or developing more renewable energy and that's kind of where you know this this came about and i think a lot of people are more are very interested in retrofitting their homes to be more energy clean energy efficient and produce their own solar though we don't get that much sun in oregon but a lot of people here want to to do those changes but if you're still connected to the grid you're not necessarily getting that um 100 clean energy and i think that's what i wanted to detail in this story is that like yes at a, a home level community level you can do as much as you can but if we don't update our grid we're not going to be able to reach our goals so another piece that you did doesn't necessarily get into the science aspect of climate or environment. You report on things like access issues too. For example, you mentioned electric vehicles, electric vehicle access and barriers to access for communities of color. We've done a lot of things on this podcast about communities of color and access related issues. What was the reporting like for that one? So when I decided to take this job, I told myself that I really wanted to focus on centering communities that aren't covered as frequently as they should be. As a Latina woman, I wanted to make sure that I was reaching out to the Latino communities and hearing what they thought about the coverage and how to improve it. So that has always been at the back of my mind when I look at stories and how I develop stories, I kind of like look in a little bit deeper as to like, okay, here's this program, who's being affected or how's it working out? In the case of this story, there has been lots of incentives and a big push for people to buy EVs. And the state has two rebate programs and one is aimed at low to middle income households. And I kind of like started you know, asking them like, hey, what are the statistics looking like? Like who's taking advantage of this? And the state has this really great website that shows how that is working out. And it was predominantly white people taking advantage of the rebates and taking advantage of, of being able to buy an EV. And when I reached out to the state and I was like, hey, well, well what's going on here? You know, you have this program 
that is aimed for low-income communities and communities of color, but it's not it's not getting to where it needs to be. And that's kind of how that story developed in terms of like, yes, here's this great thing, but there's still this huge gap in terms of like who's actually able to access these vehicles and and take advantage of them. And and I'm still continuing that coverage now kind of moving into like EV chargers. But again, there's always that like, okay, well, where are they being placed? Who's actually going to have access to them? Is there going to be programs that will allow low to middle income folks to be able to get a discount charge or, or, or a discount, right, to purchase that electricity to charge their car? So I'm always thinking of access. I'm always thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and just making sure that shows up in, in most, if not all, of my stories. That covers certainly how you come up with your ideas. I think you've been pretty comprehensive on that so far. Is there a recent piece that you're proud of that you'd like to walk us through from initial idea to finished product? So last year, the State Department of Environmental Quality issued its second largest fine to a port located in Eastern Oregon for basically dumping nitrates in groundwater. And that caught my attention on its own. I started asking questions like, how can this happen? I mean, it was tons and tons of water that was dumped in a certain time frame, And it led me down a very, very huge rabbit hole that produced a feature where I went out to Eastern Oregon to talk about the affected community members who have private wells that had no idea how contaminated their groundwater was because of nitrate issues. Uh, and it that story alone led to more reporting and realizing that this issue has been known by the state for more than 30 years. And if anything, nitrate levels have increased. And so there's there's been a lot more attention. I wouldn't say necessarily just because of my reporting, but other reporters in different news organizations in the state have also started paying close attention to it. And I really, it's a sad story because again, the state has known about this for more than three decades and not much has been done but it also is is a story where you can center the community and that was something that i wanted to again bring across it through this the reporting that i've done it's just like who's affected who is the the person that has to purchase bottled water because they can't safely drink the water from their tap or you know I found out that if you're trying to sell your home and the nitrate levels are high, you can't sell your home until you fix it. But if you don't have money to fix it, what are you going to do? You're kind of stuck in this terrible circle. So that story, the fine happened in January of 2020. My big reporting story came out in April uh, or maybe May, and I've still been following up and still kind of pressuring lawmakers and city officials, state officials onto what's happening. And even till last week, we're still hearing more about it. And it's, I'm proud of it because I've kept up with it and I'm pushing a lot of state agencies 
and now our our new governor into um getting some answers just so you know the community can know what's what's happening and that's still you know in the works but i'm i'm happy that i kept with it and that i'm able to keep reporting on it seems uh, like a very ambitious project and it's not the first that we've talked about with regards to nitrate water contamination yan chi shu in in nebraska encountered a lot of the the same issues that you're talking about for those that want to go back and check that episode out it is it seems to be a nationwide or at least a couple of different states west mm-hmm. issue for sure all right so when you're reporting the one thing we haven't really gotten into here is the mechanics of the job you mentioned the you know you don't have to cut tape thankfully what does reporting a story for for radio require you to do so it depends so we have our you know newscast items it's a story that you basically have to write in 45 seconds what has happened and if you listen to npr those are usually the newscast items that you hear but then there's our longer feature stories and it's kind of like what i was explaining with the power grid and the groundwater contamination in eastern oregon and that requires kind of like thinking about how do I bring in my the listeners into this story without having to describe that. And so the process of that really goes into like, okay, my opening scene, what kind of sound do I want? Recently, I wrote about a potential battery boom here in Oregon. And I went to a facility that creates batteries. And it was really cool because there's this machine going, and I was like, ooh, I need that in my story. So like when, you know, I open it, the people, the audience can feel like, oh, she's in a warehouse. She doesn't have to explain really what she's doing. And it really just kind of takes about like, how do I best tell this story to intrigue our audience, to hopefully make them stay for the four minutes and 30 seconds that I have and still learn something new about what's happening or give them the news. And so that's, it, it takes a lot of thinking, a lot of planning and just making sure like <laughs> you're recording at all times because there are moments where you unexpectedly get that bite that you need. For example, again, in this battery boom story, we're looking into this room that has older, all very rusty um, batteries that they're testing out for their life longevity and the sea and and the person that I was interviewing was like oh I love this room it always reminds me of Frankenstein and I was like oh that's great you know (laughs) people can kind of picture what he meant by that right where Dr. Frankenstein is creating you know the monster and you just like this vision of a room where it's like chaotic in the background and you know you have these tubes and stuff and so I was like oh that's that's really great so a tip for radio reporters or wanting to get into radio is just like, make sure you're always recording. And always be ready for when that moment comes, because it's like, when it does, it's like light bulbs go off inside your head. Mm-hmm. I've experienced yeah. it for sure. All right. So let's switch gears slightly and talk about the Uproot Project. I mentioned that you are the you co-chair the steering committee for them. It's a group intended for environmental journalists of color. Explain, explain the group in greater detail. So yeah, like what you're saying, it's a network by and for environmental journalists of color. And it's really just, you know, a a place to provide support to uplift our voices 
as well as just like provide resources to advance our careers really before Uproot or the Uproot project, there wasn't a place where environmental journalists of color could kind of come together and share resources and just meet and network and, and you know, also share frustrations. I think, you know, with every group, there's always going to be like the goods and the good and the bad. And what I really like is that um, what started maybe in 2020 by a group of a small group of environmental journalists of color has now expanded to more than 400 members and that's worldwide and so it's been a good place and we have we have plans more plans to expand but you know i think being involved in this has really shown me um just the importance of having a a, a place for people to come together what initiatives are you currently working on? So we are going to be having our national convening at the Society of Environmental Journalists coming up later this month. We're going to announce some exciting things, so I can't get too ahead on that. But just know that we are hoping to expand and build little hubs here and there. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> uh, and yeah, just Right now, we are transitioning our steering committee to a board. So we've been doing a lot of work into what goes into a board, how should our board run, and just kind of getting our foundation set. So then once that is settled, then we can start to think, all right, where do we need to put our focus and our attention to? So how can a pipeline be better developed for jobs that involve covering the environment? I think... That is, I think that starts in a newsroom level. If you have the editors in place and the reporters ready to go and provide the resources they need to cover this expansive beat, I think that that's the best way to kind of create that pipeline for more reporters to get involved. Like I keep saying, this is such a huge beat and I could truly just focus on one topic, which would be, let's say the clean energy transition. But if I don't have an editor that knows about it, it's kind of like, oh, how do I, how do I like move forward from this? Or how do I get to, to the expertise level that I need to be? But yeah, I think it's it's important just to make sure that there's a dedicated editor to solely focus on the beat and to be able to help the reporters tackle it. What's the, going back to, to the job itself and working in the environment and climate, or in this case now the climate community, what's the best part of the job? I love the fact that I'm always meeting new people. I'm always hearing a lot of interesting stories and getting to work on something new. For example, in in thinking about stories for the clean energy transition, I'm hoping, and maybe somebody might reach out if they hear me say this, but I'm really looking for a microgrid community. I know it's out there. I know that there's a, a small community somewhere in the state that has created a, a microgrid itself. And those things excite me because I'm like, okay, cool. Here's this community that's figured it out. 
let's let's how do we frame the story for like the state to see that this can be done and this is important in terms of like getting to that 100% renewable future um and sometimes let's say that idea doesn't pan out maybe something else might come from it so i like that this job is always keeping me on my toes in terms of different story ideas maybe doing something and failing at it, but then realizing, okay, cool. Well, maybe the story didn't work out, but then this story might work out. So I just love that I can always dip into a lot of different things. What makes Oregon specifically interesting to cover? Well, I love the fact that the community is so involved and passionate about finding solutions and helping people when they need it, especially in my beat in terms of of like energy retro clean energy retrofits and stuff. What's the hardest part of the job? The hardest part is is a lot of the stories, if not most, aren't going to be happy stories, especially when you're writing about environmental justice or the human impacts of climate change. And it's just having to get used to hearing the hardships people are going through. For example, last year, or, oh my gosh, we're in 2023. In 2021, when the heat dome uh, was hovering over us in the summer, I was on a farm just kind of witnessing how farmer, how the farmer and farm workers were working in the heat. And I was just standing out there and I felt like I was going to pass out. And I'm just watching, you know, the farm workers work as quickly as they can to beat the heat before the farm worker called it a day at 9 a.m. And then I'm watching a lot of farm workers, like there was a blueberry farm, fill up their buckets, get them weighed, and then they're I'm I'm watching them run to their cars. And I'm like, why are they running to their cars? And I asked another person that was with me. And they're like, oh, they're going to other jobs because they, they're if like they're not gonna get their pay here anymore. Like they, they still need to figure out a way how to make more money. So they're running to other jobs. And I'm like, oh my goodness, it's those things where it's just kind of like you don't really think about it because you're not in those situations. But it's really so eye-opening to know, like, all right, me as a journalist. Maybe I, I I have a platform and just telling stories, but that's what encourages me to continue. But it's also hard to witness that type of of thing happening. I remember calling my mom and I was like, oh my God, I'm like melting, I almost passed out. And I'm just watching farm workers work as hard as they can and then run to another job. And the day, I think that day reached 116 degrees. Whoa. How has being a journalist impacted how you view the world? Oh, enormously. <laughs> um, it's really, before journalism, I probably was like oblivious. I don't know. <laughs> was it really, I didn't watch as much news as I do now. I wasn't paying attention to a lot of things that I pay attention to now. And really in terms of like, climate change, I got into this beat a little, uh, I feel a little late, but I've known about this issue for so long, but now being in it 
living through it, I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of work to do, but it's journalism and especially this beat has really impacted my life, but in a positive way, because it's helping me ask better questions in some of my life decisions. And yeah, it's just kind of, it's benefited me a lot and that's motivated me to write better stories. So hopefully that the audience can also see that in my writing in terms of, of trying to help them. A lot of important stories certainly to tell on this beat. The show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work and ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? Well, we've already talked about them, but I couldn't. Um, I, I want to salute the Uproot Project because I'm really proud of everyone that's been involved in in trying to get this off the ground and making it what it is. And it, it is a lot of hard work, but it's it's doing good for a lot of people. And I'm just really proud of everyone that I get to work with in, in the Upper Project. Can I can I ask that there be a comma there with a group that you're not affiliated with? Um, I actually wanted to also shout out a coworker. Can I do that? Sure. Mira Powell. She is our higher ed, higher education reporter at OPB, and she is always killing it on her stories. And I just wanted to let her know that I appreciate everything that she's doing. And, and yeah. Cool. All right. Monica Semioa, thank you for taking the time to join us. We'll be following your work. Best of luck. Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate it. You can learn more about the Uproot Project at uprootproject.org. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.